Good morning, everybody. Hi. Um, Rand took all of my intro material. I was going to say my name is, oh, actually, he didn't. My name is Daniel, um, for those that don't know. Um, But pretty much everyone knows me as reggae. And I'm sure there were some people out there that when I said my name is Daniel, they were like, no, actually, your name is reggae. I'm sure there was some people out there. Um, And I was going to say... I am married. <laughs> um, and yeah, we, we have a baby on the way. His name is Calvin. Um, so, you know, Mary has, Mary has the belly. Super exciting. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I like to, to say that, you know, husbands and wives start to, to look alike. Um, I, I only use that joke because Mary called me out yesterday and she was like, you keep using that joke. And I'm like, I'm going to use it again. Um, I am very glad to be here with you all. I am very thankful to be given this opportunity to share God's word with you. Um, let's, let's open up our Bibles to James chapter 1. Uh, during this whole like uh, sermon prep time, uh, Rand and Pat, they really like did like a hands-on mentoring thing through the whole, through the whole process. Where it was like each week there was like a list of questions to answer and like observations and like applications to draw and like it was a whole thing. Um, and if you know anything about Rand, he's super thorough, like super thorough. Uh, and it was such a it was such an honor to be a part of that process and then to get a sense for get a sense for how much work goes into the process. And so, um, yeah, just thankful for all of our overseers and whenever they preach, just knowing that they spend so much time in the word and so much time in prep. And so just thankful. Um, All right. If you have your Bibles open up to James chapter one, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll begin. Heavenly Father, we're thankful to be here and we're thankful for your word. Thank you, Lord, that you love us deeply and that you've sent your son to die on the cross for us. Thank you, Lord, that you've given us your word for us to learn from and for us to to apply. Thank you for the spirit who comes and indwells every believer and works in us to transform us to look more like Jesus. In this moment now, Lord, as we look into your word, would you help us to open up our eyes and our ears and our hearts? Help us, Lord, to understand and to take the sin. Um, Help us, Lord, to submit to your will and uh, to grow in our love for you and for your people. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, So we're going to be going through a a few passages in the book of James. Um, And just to give a little bit of context for the way that James was written and the author, this is James. Uh, He is not the brother of John, uh, one of the 12 disciples. Um, uh, James, John's brother, um, he was... He was killed and martyred way before. Um, This is James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who is at this point a leader of the Jerusalem church. And uh, after the Virgin Mary had Jesus, then Mary and Joseph, husband and wife, they had more children. Um, And so this is one of Jesus' half-brothers. He is writing to, if you look in verse 1, he's writing to the disciples. The dispersion. The dispersion is 
Early on in the, in the early church times, there was a lot of persecution. Persecution still happens all around the world, but back then too, um, where the Jewish, the Jewish people were looking upon the, the newly formed Christian church and uh, saying like, these are heretics, these are, they're bad and they're evil. Um, Christians, early Christians were also persecuted later on by like other Gentiles, like Roman, uh, the Roman government too. But during that time when there was a lot of persecution and things, the Israelites, they, w- they scattered, they dispersed um, in fear, in livelihood and different things. And so they were just scattered all around Jerusalem and uh, James is just reaching out to everybody and he's writing this letter and he's saying, hey, this is for you to hear, okay? Um, this is to a people who has faced a lot of turmoil in the way that they live, um, who have been disowned by family, who have undergone a lot of different trials, a lot of different difficulties. And he's writing to them, comforting them, encouraging them. Um, and that's kind of what we're delving into here. So let's start here by looking at James. James chapter 1, verse 2. After his intro, James opens up with this line, and he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. What an interesting thing that he opens up this letter, speaking to who he's speaking to, specifically saying the dispersion, saying, hey, you guys have been persecuted and scattered for good reason. You guys got scattered and count it all joy when you face trials. When you face difficulty, it's just an interesting perspective to have when he says, look at it in a joyful light. Joy, not exactly like happy. Happy is a little bit, I think, more shallow. Um, It's a deeper meaning, but it kind of has that idea of like, be happy, have joy, uh, have uh, relish in knowing what God is doing. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. But I want to focus in on this word, trials. When we look at it through our modern, like, American lens, I think when we look at the word trials, we typically use this word in kind of a singular context. It's something bad happened to me. You know, family member got sick. Um, like, there were, like, travel plans that went awry. A uh, family member died. Maybe I got betrayed. Something happens to me, and we're saying, like, oh, I'm undergoing trials right now. But the way that the Bible uses it, trials are not simply external pressures that happen to us where we're just the passive recipient of whatever is happening. Sometimes we read these verses and we interpret it to be, like, be joyful when something bad happens to you. It is that, it includes that, it's just not exclusively that. In the Greek, the word for trials is pyrosmos. The word for trials in Greek is pyrosmos. This word pyrosmos is used multiple times in the New Testament, like 20 sometimes. And most of the time that it's used, it's used with a different definition, in different translation. A few times it's used and it says trials. So wanted to look through some of those examples when the word pyrosmos is used and just kind of see how, it, how it's used here. So Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 says, we don't have it, right? 
we, ah, nice. Um, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 says, Jesus says, oh, sorry. Yeah, Jesus is instructing his disciples to pray like this. And he says, and lead us not into temptation, pyrosmus, but deliver us from evil. This is like an interesting thing because it's like, if we look at it through the lens of like, oh, trials, bad things happening to me. It's just not how we normally read this line. When we read this line, we go, oh, deliver us, lead us not to temptation. Temptation is something that I face, things that I might fall into, something I might commit. Lord, don't lead me there, right? It's, it's what, how we read that typically. Um, let's look at another verse. Matthew 26, 41 says, Jesus says, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, pyrosmus. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Same idea. Is he saying, like, watch and pray that we don't, bad things don't happen to me? No. He's saying, watch and pray that you don't, sub, like, succumb to things that you're going to do, negative things that you're going to do. Luke chapter 4, verse 13. And when the devil had ended every temptation, pyrosmus, he departed from him, Jesus, until an opportune time. This is referring back to when Jesus wandered through the wilderness for 40 days. He was fasting, and uh, during that time, Satan had come to tempt Jesus, and it said, after the devil had ended every pyrosmus. It's not just bad things happening to Jesus. It is there are internal struggles going on within Jesus and he overcame. First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted, pirazzo, beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And then James 1.12 comes up later in this chapter. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial but it's the same word, pyrosmus. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under temptation, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So when G James is using the word trials, I think we kind of have to like get out of our minds that he's only exclusively talking about bad circumstances that happen. Like, are those included? Yes, they are included. If anything, often during times when we're struggling, oftentimes when things, bad things are happening to us is when our faith gets tested. That is when like, we start to question, like, oh, do I really believe what God is saying? So that is included, but we're leaving out huge chunks of other things, other trials, other temptations that we struggle with when we're only talking about how we are the victim of some bad circumstance. He's not exclusively talking about bad things that happen to us. He's talking about pyrosmus, temptations of various kinds. And when we read it through that lens, it's a little different. So trials can include unfortunate, even tragic circumstances. It's in these difficult scenarios that we, our trust can waver. But a temptation or trial, like the definition, a temptation is anything that influences us to distrust, rebel, or disobey. I didn't want to use the word like causes us because temptations will tempt us, but really we choose. 
right? So it's not like, oh, it made me. I chose. It influences us to distrust, rebel, or disobey God. But it's very broad. It encapsulates a lot of stuff. So within that, you can have bad situations as one type of trial. But we'll split these like trials. We'll try to like distinguish the difference um, with two categories. External trials and then internal trials. External trials are struggles that happen to you. Family member gets sick, passes away, a close friend betrays you, economy tanks, like things that happen to you, you kind of have no control over. Internal trials are struggles that happen from within you. Being lazy, being lustful, using unhelpful words, breaking your promises. These aren't things that happen to you. There are things that stem kind of from your, your character. Both are included in when we say when you, when you experience trials of various kinds. You experience temptations of various kinds. Temptations ultimately put your faith to the test. Asking you the question, do you really trust God in his instructions and his promises? Does your faith in him stand in every situation? Whether it's me kind of in my public life, surrounded by a bunch of people, or it's in my private life, by myself, whatever. In whatever situation, whatever's happening, does my faith stand? I love that James calls it trials of various kinds. I love the use of that phrase, various kinds, because we know the temptations come from anywhere and everywhere. They're like, it's always creeping. It's always there. And the temptation for me to respond poorly in an ungodly fashion in whatever situation, it's there. There are various trials, both external and internal. It's really any scenario when an individual's faith is tested and proved. It's like, I know what the right thing is, but in this moment, it's put to the test, and it goes, well, are you going to live it? So James says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Um, <laughs> funny, I, sorry, I forgot to mention the the outline that I had up there. Uh, it's going to be in four movements. Uh, it's going to start with how God uses trials. <laughs> My bad. How God uses trials. And then we're going to talk about how we approach trials. Then we'll talk about the proper response to God's wisdom in trials. And then after that, we'll wrap it all up together with the conclusion. So here, we're talking about how God uses trials. What does he do? use it for? Like, what is the ultimate aim here? He says that, for you know that the testing of your faith, when you go through the temptations, when you are tested in your faith, that will produce steadfastness. Steadfastness being, like, steady, consistent. And we're not talking about, like, steadiness in sin, like, in, in bad, negative, you know, way. Um, it's assumed here that it's a faithful obedience to God and a steadiness in that. If we respond to in faithful obedience through our trials, it will cultivate in us 
steadfastness, which will fully manifest eventually in perfection. It is, steadfastness is faithful endurance, unswerving perseverance, and patient continuance to God, in God. This is what I want. I don't want a wavering and fickle heart that goes back and forth and changes based on how I'm feeling that day. I want to be steady. I want to be consistent in my love and in my trust in God. I want to be steadfast. But how do I, how do I obtain this steadfastness? In the next verse, James 1.4, he continues and he says, And let steadfastness have its full effect. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What God is working in us, and if we allow him to, right, it's we have to allow steadfastness to have its full effect. How do we do that? We have to respond in these trials with faithful obedience. That's how steadfastness has its full effect, and that will eventually lead to perfection, completion, lacking in nothing. This is what God is doing in us as God's people, people who trust, love him. This is what he's doing in us. This is the end result. And this is why he says, count it all joy, because we know where he's leading. We know what the end result is. Often, even when times are difficult, even when we're in pain, even when we're suffering, when we know that at the end of things, things are going to be okay, that very much like lightens the, the heaviness of the situation. Um, and so consider it pure joy when you face these trials, knowing that God is forming in you a steadfast faithfulness to him. The next section, how to approach trials. But what do we do when we're in situations where we're not sure how to handle it? Like we don't know the right answer. We don't know what to do. We're unsure of our response. I, I know I'm supposed to love my enemies, but I don't know how. I know I'm supposed to refrain from drunkenness and lust, but how do I overcome these struggles, these trials? James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Wisdom is like taking something that we know, like facts, right, and being able to apply it. It's not just like, oh, I know information, but it's like taking it and like being able to actually do something with it, um, living it out. And James is saying, when we lack that know-how, like what am I supposed to do? He says, ask God. God gives generously to all. Ask him and he will give you wisdom. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's like, so I just ask God and then he gives it to me. Cool. But then James moves into this other thing, and he says, verse 6, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. And then it's like question marks. Okay, what does it mean to ask in faith when we're talking about like these trials, these temptations that we're facing? Okay, I'm facing a temptation, a struggling, I'm struggling with, drunkenness, I'm struggling with greed, and I'm lacking the wisdom, how do I ask in faith here? What does it mean to ask in doubting? The one asking in faith 
is the one who trusts implicitly that God's way is better. On the flip side, the one doubting is unsure, unsure or not convinced whether he actually wants to do things God's way. God says it's better to love your enemies. God says it's better to forgive those who have hurt you. God says it's better to do it this way. But I'm not like, are you sure? Are you sure that's the best way to do it? Like, I'm not quite convinced. What if I do it that way and it, you know, digs me into a worse hole? Like, what if that's wrong? Think of a hypothetical person, a person who prays, God, help me be more hospitable because my heart's just not in it, right? I want to be, but my heart's not in it. And then an opportunity comes for this person to exercise hospitality and then multiple thoughts like flood into the brain. One, ugh, I'm kind of tired. Like, I, I had a really busy day yesterday, and like, I, I'm just not sure if I want to like really be around another person right now. Two, if I have to invite this person over, then like, I have to host them, which means I kind of have to like be involved in the whole process. I can't just like, hey, like, come on over. Like, see, I'm gonna go take a nap. Number three, so then I don't get to relax. Like, I, I was hoping that this would be a more relaxing weekend or whatever. I don't get to relax. Maybe next time? Maybe I'll do it next time. And the crazy thing is, like, all of this happens in, internally. All of this happens in our minds. No one knows, you know? Like, the original prayer, like, Lord, help me to be more hospitable. That was in the person's mind. Um, and all of the reasons why he, you know, kind of processing the pros and the cons and stuff... That's also happening in the mind. At the end of the day, no one knows. So if I follow through, great, like no one knows. If I don't follow through, no one knows. No harm, no foul, right? What our hypothetical friend here doesn't realize is that he isn't asking in faith. He isn't trusting that when God said to live this way is better, he's not quite understanding that. I kind of want to say that, like, with a, with a grain of salt, like, you know, a lot of what we're talking about is so, like, discernment-based. There's so much gray area, like, because we can think of a million reasons as to why we should, why we shouldn't, and then we can think of a, a million ways of, like, kind of reasoning out, like, oh, but isn't this reason good? Isn't this reason, like, like uh, doesn't it actually excuse me, you know? Um, That's not really for me to say, to be honest. Um, I think in this whole process, it's God who tests the heart. And it's between you and the Lord, whether your motive, your thoughts, your reasoning is legitimate. Like That's really between you and the Lord. Um, What we're hoping for is just more for like introspection. Think about why we're doing what we're doing. What is it really for? And be honest with yourself, right? Are you asking in faith? Are you asking and doubting? Do you trust when God says this way is better? Do you trust that? Or you go, oh, I'm not sure. I, I kind of feel like maybe not. Maybe that was a little bit like in, his, in that context back then, but we're a little bit like, you know, more evolved now as a society. Maybe it's a little different, you know? We want to be introspective and think about, like, are we asking in faith or are we asking in doubting? James would describe this man who asks but does not live it out, he says, 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. He asks for one thing, but he doesn't really mean it. He asks if he wants to become like this, but then opportunity comes. He doesn't really live it out. And then he says in verse 7, For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Sounds so harsh. It sounds so harsh that you're calling him a double-minded man, that you're calling him unstable. And yet, James is speaking reality. He's saying, you prayed this. You were saying that you wanted this earnestly, and then the moment came and you didn't really want it. And so, how do we approach trials? The Bible says, when you lack wisdom, ask God. He will give it to you. He will give it in full. He will give you the wisdom. But then there's a flip side to it of, or like there's a follow-up to it of God will give you the wisdom, but you have to be the one to do it. And if you're not, then you are a double-minded person, a double-minded man. You are unstable in all your ways. What is, here's the next, the next part, what is the proper response to God's wisdom in trials? We're going to jump ahead here to James chapter 1, verse 19. Chapter 1, verse 19. And James says this, Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. That whole first part of be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, uh, that could be its own sermon. Uh, it's not going to be a sermon right now in this moment. Um, we are going to kind of pass by that, but wanted to lead into this, this part where he says, therefore, therefore. He says, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. God is producing in us steadfastness when we faithfully obey and he's saying that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, he says to put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness from within our hearts. And he says to receive with meekness the implanted word. What a cool use of the word implanted, implanted. He's like the Bible, the word is in you. You've heard it. It's in you. The implanted word, and this implanted word is able to save your souls. God's word is powerful enough to save our souls. The word is implanted in our hearts, and yet James still says to receive it with meekness. Well, if, I, if it's in my heart, didn't I already receive it? And he's saying, no, it, the word is implanted, but you still have to receive it with meekness. This has to do with the posture of our hearts. How do we regard God's word? Do we regard the words that we hear from God? Do we agree? Do we disagree? Do we cherish it? Or do we get frustrated by what it means for us? Ah, oh, man, if, if, if this is right, then we have, I have to change my life this way. I have to live this way now instead of the way I did before. God's word contains within it the message of salvation 
It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. But we need to receive it. We need to cherish it. Then James moves on, one, uh, chapter 1, verse 22, 21. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness, rampant wickedness, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But, but, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And when we, when we read the previous verse and it was like, receive with meekness the implanted word. It's like, okay, so I have the word. And he's like, you need to regard it and, and cherish it and delight in God's word. Like, how do you regard God's word? And it's like, you need to receive it with meekness. It's like, okay, I got that. Cool. Like, I, I heard it. I agree. Like, I'm fully on board. And then he goes, but that's not enough. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you only hear the word, even if you agreed, if you only hear the word, not along, and then do nothing, he says you are deceiving yourself. Is the word able to save our souls? Yes. But if we do not respond to the word we hear by doing it, we're deceiving ourselves. We hear God's word, we receive it with meekness, but that's not enough. We need to do it. Let's go to the next verse. He says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he, looked, what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This metaphor is not hard to understand. Right? It, it was written in such a way where it was like, uh, that's, that's obviously, like, dumb. <laughs> you know, like, why would you look at yourself, see what you, the imperfections you have, turn away and go like, oh, I don't remember. It sounds like the morning routine of half the men in this room, including myself. <laughs> I mean, um, but that's, it's, it's written to be like, oh, that's, that's crazy. That's crazy that you look at yourself and forget. And yet, James is saying, yeah, it is crazy. It is crazy for you to look at God's word, to hear what it says, to agree, like, yes, something needs to change, and then nothing. And he says, it's not the one who hears that will be blessed, but it's the one that, the, it's the doer who acts. How important does the Bible consider it to live out the word? It's kind of a rhetorical question. It's essential. It's essential. Uh, we'll just jump through a uh, uh, couple of verses here just to kind of get this in our minds to be on the same page. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 17, he says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. James 4, 17, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. The teaching leads to the good work. And then Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For 
We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is what we were created for, to not just know the good things to do, but to do them. When you hear a sermon and the Spirit strikes your heart with conviction, is it a priority for you to implement that truth into your life? How much? How much of a priority is it? Not just in thought, but like realistically, like practically. I've struggled with this. Um, if someone were to come up to me and said, like, hey, could you like put like a worship set together and like do this and do that? And like, I could do it. Like, and I love to do it. I'm so glad to do it. I love leading worship every week. Like, it's such a joy for me to, to participate in God's work that way and then to join in song with everyone. Like, it's wonderful. Like, I can, I can do that. But I can also clearly remember times when I've listened to a sermon and just struck with, like, conviction. I'm like, oh, my gosh. Like, God is, like, punching me. Like, I could feel it. It felt like God was telling me that I need to change the way that I was living. And I'm like, yeah, I get it. I agree. I'm totally on board. A lot of these would also be very emotional too. I'm like sitting there reflecting and like just my eyes are like welling up and I'm like tears are falling down and then I have to like pretend like I have like stuff in my eyes and whatever. Um, I would then be driving home later that day and Mary asks me like, hey, like, like what are your thoughts from the sermon? And I'm sitting there, like, telling her, oh, my gosh, like, it was so good. Like, I, God was telling me this thing. I need a change. And then I would go to DG and my discipleship group, and I'm in my small group, and I'm telling them, like, guys, like, I really need to work on this. i got to change it. Things need to change. I can't keep living this way. And I've had plenty of convictions from other sermons and stuff before, but, like, this one, you know, as the cool kids say, it just hits different, you know? And then I would go home, and then I, I would go to sleep, wake up the next morning, and when I wake up, that passion is gone. Like, I still remember the thoughts that I had and the convictions that I felt. I, I still remember in concept, in knowledge, but I don't feel that, like, urgency. And to be honest, not that I even have to feel the urgency. I don't have to feel that. The question is, are you going to do it? It's not, are you going to do it passionately? It's just, are you going to do it, right? But when I feel that lack of, when that feeling fades, then my obedience is like put to the test. Was the thoughts that I was having just an emotional response that doesn't lead to anything? Or is it something that I truly believe in? Do I really trust that God is leading me in this conviction? Because I absolutely meant every word when I said it. I wasn't lying. I wasn't making something up. I, I was telling the truth. But the question is, when, God's t when God tells me that his way is better, do I really believe him? Because the moment where I'm struggling, God wants me to do one thing, but my heart wants to do another. Like, I'm standing there at like a crossroad. Like, I have a decision to make. When I ask God to change me, like, do I believe that what he is promising is what I want? Like, do I really trust that his way is better? Am I firmly persuaded, totally convinced, completely won over 
that God knows what will lead to my satisfaction? I would ask myself those questions, and I would say yes to all of those questions in my mind. I'm sitting there, I'm like, yes, I do believe that what God is saying is what I want. I do trust that his way is better than my own. I am firmly persuaded, totally convinced, completely won over that God knows what leads to my satisfaction. I do. And then in the moment where I'm standing at that crossroad and I have to make my decision, I go the other way. I've done it. I've done it. Multiple times, I've done it. I can be full of good intentions that result in nothing. And what are good intentions when they don't actually do anything? I have been the double-minded man that James is talking about. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I have been that man. What about you? Like, can you take a moment right now just and try to remember the most recent thing about yourself that you felt convicted by the Lord to change? Just take a moment. Just think, what's the most recent thing that you can think of? Were you successful in changing? Was it easy? Was it hard? What are the active steps that you took to like make that happen? When you ask God to change you, how much effort do you as an individual put in into obeying him? When facing a trial, whether external or internal, we are often our worst enemies. Are you actively working to remain faithfully steadfast to the Lord? If not, the Lord is calling you to repentance. He's calling you to change your ways, to not just be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer. For some of you, the struggle may be different. Some of you may kind of be on a, a, like a different end of the spectrum. Some of you may rarely have convictions from the Lord, not ones that you can remember. You may share like, a lot of the things you share are like, oh, this happens to me. This happened to me. Oh, my gosh, this happened to me. Um, this happened at work. Or like, my wife did this. Or my children did this. My friend did this. You know, my, my travel plans. Like, people got sick. But rarely we'll share about things that God is actually teaching you. And when asked, you have a difficult time thinking of one. It's possible that even when I asked just a second ago, like to think of something recently that you had to, were convicted to change in, you had a hard time trying to come up with one. It's possible. If it's wrong to look into a mirror, see what you need to change, turn and then forget, then you're not even looking into the mirror. That's not good either. Look, God is holy and he's changing us from who we were to who he wants us to be. We're not a finished product. Everyone knows, like, I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. We're not perfect. We know, like, things need to change, right? Um, and it'll be a long, long while before we become perfect, you know? <laughs> long time. Long time. So then there has to be something, right? 
Like, in this journey of progression, like, there's got to be something that needs to change. Let me ask you some of these questions to maybe think about and process, and if, if that is you, like, who has a difficult time coming up with thinking of things that need to change. How much time do you spend reading the Word and reflecting on what you need to repent of? Not just, like, reading and being done, but, like, thinking about it, meditating on it, reflecting how much time do you spend reflecting on a sermon and think about like where I fall short in the process? Not, I mean, not every sermon is going to be like, oh, like hit me so hard, you know, like not every sermon is going to be like that. Um, but do you spend time, you know, on a regular basis processing and thinking about these things? Do you pray specifically asking God, to search your heart and reveal to you what needs to be changed? Is that like a regular part of your prayer life? Maybe that's who, maybe this is who you are, you know, maybe just a little bit less introspective. Maybe it, that's, it's kind of like a personality quirk type stuff. Maybe it's just the season that you're in, you know. Um, maybe you're normally like that, but just kind of where you are, it's rough. And even like wherever you are, this is something we all need to hear. Because a day will come when the Lord calls us to change. A day will come. If you're a Christian, a day will come. And when it comes, will you obey? We'll wrap this up um, here. Um, so then coming back to James chapter 1, verses 2 and through 4, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is working in all believers everywhere to completely transform us, make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But we must must be active participants in that process. And even when we try, the truth is that there will be times when we fail. It's just kind of a part of the human experience. We need to understand that God has everlasting grace for us. He will strengthen us, and ultimately we will succeed because of his strength, not ours. Is it 100% God's strength? Yes, is it 100% our effort in obedience? Yes. We need to pray like it's all up to God to help us. And then we also have to work, strive as hard as we can like it's all up to us. We need both. It's not healthy to just do one and not the other. We are God's people. He has given us his word to understand his grace and to live righteously, to repent from the ways our flesh will naturally lean and to walk in the ways of his son. So we need to hear the word and live it. We need to look at ourselves in the mirror and then fervently work to bring the change that we see needs to change. We need to have faith and good works. We need to know the right thing to do and then do it. We need to learn from scripture and then put it into practice. We need to understand that we've been saved by faith alone and then use every fiber of our effort to do the good works that God has prepared beforehand for us to do. And then when we fail, we remember that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. God will perfect us in his timing. There's a, there's a song 
that reflects this like transformation that Jesus is working in us. And uh, it's a song that I love, I cherish very much. It might be one my favorite, actually. Um, and it always reminds me of what the Lord is doing. I'd like to sing a part of it as kind of as we close here. If you know it, feel free to join. It goes, with every breath, I long to follow Jesus, for he has said that he will bring me home. And day by day, I know he will renew me until I stand with joy before the throne. To this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still my lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. As God's people, may we joyfully live in obedience through trials, temptations of various kinds, pressures from the world, tragic hardships, even struggles to trust from within our own hearts. We know that responding in obedience through these trials will make us more and more steady in Christ until he comes back to take us home. And by his power, by his strengthening, we will overcome our trials. So let us both hear God's word and put forth every effort to live according to it. And may Jesus be glorified. If you believe it, say amen. amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we want to reflect on our own hearts. This message isn't anything super profound. It's nothing new. And it's not anything that we haven't heard before. We probably heard this message, if you've been in the church, like hundreds of times. And yet it, it comes down, um, and it's such a, like an essential part of our Christian walk. Um, we're so used to hearing and not doing. We're, we're used to nodding along and then, and then not putting in the effort. Um, and we've seen times where we'll, we won't do something and then we'll find ways to justify why we won't do it. But ultimately, Lord, you call us to repentance and you say, you tell us, like, if you trust, you will obey if you hear it and you believe it, you will live it out. Um, so help us, Lord, to be introspective, to think about our hearts and our motives. Um, and help us, Lord, to not just be full of good intention. Help us to be your people who are your hands and your feet to walk through this life in faithful obedience, knowing, Lord, that you are making us and strengthening us to be steady to have to be steadfast until one day you make us perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Lord, we know that it is by your strength and we know that we need to put forth every effort. Um, help us to believe and do both. Um, Holy Spirit, we just come and ask for your empowerment to live the way that you want us to, that our lives would be shaped and formed into looking more like Jesus each and every day. 
to grow in our love for you and to grow in our love for your people, um, that our lives would be dynamic in the sense of we are daily faithful and repenting of our sin. Um, thank you, Lord, for loving us first and for, for allowing us to love you in return. May your name be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.